This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, yesterday, COP26 finally stopped after two weeks uh, of negotiations uh, on the question of climate change. Uh, The most famous um, COP was the one held in Paris in 2015. Uh, The big breakthrough in Paris was an agreement by the big nations uh, that the endeavor would be to uh, hold climate warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels and keeping 1.5, the target alive, was the stated objective or one of them of COP26, which was held in Glasgow um, before it began. Uh, China and uh, India and indeed Brazil, uh, three big emitters, uh, did not send their heads of state or their uh, heads of government. However, they did send delegations. There were 197 countries represented from those most severely affected by uh, climate change and indeed the poorest to the very rich uh, indeed. And we're joined now by two people who do know what to make of the outcome uh, and who can read between the small print to decide whether this was a success or not. Uh, John Gibbons is a climate activist and journalist. He's a contributor to the Sunday Business Post and to the Irish Times and a longtime uh, campaigner on climate. Kirsty Gogan is the founder and managing partner of Terra Praxis. Both of them uh, have contributed to uh, the stand before. Um, I'd like to begin, John, with you, and I'd like you to tell me which of the views and perspectives on COP26 is correct, the gloomy one or the optimistic one. Was it a disappointment, a serious disappointment, and an opportunity missed, or was it progress? Uh, Hello, Eamon. I'm... I think it was Schrodinger's cop, as somebody described it. It was, it was all of the above. It was a crushing disappointment in many, in many respects. And yet it remains, the whole process remains alive. And I suppose the situation is that no matter how bad the outcome from an individual cop, 
there is no kind of saying, well, okay, well, that's it. So we're, we're going to stop, right? So the point is that climate breakdown will continue uh, irrespective of what the intergovernmental parties uh, say. So there is no point of absolute failure in this process, by which I mean, if you fail this time, you have got to get back on the pony and you've got to try again. So I personally was extremely disappointed with the outcome of COP26, but I also recognize that this intergovernmental process, which brings together almost 200 sovereign states to try to hammer together something that our species has never really managed in in all of human history, and that is to behave in a unified, almost to have a species-wide way of, of thinking about, about the future and to behave in that way. Um, if you think, Eamon, how difficult it is to get uh, political agreement right on our own small island here about yes. many issues, now you multiply that then by 195, 197 countries at different stages of development with different political ideologies and so on, and somehow or other you've got to put all of that into the mincer and you've got to come out with a sort of a, a sausage that looks like satisfactory climate policy. It is a hell of an ask. So in that sense, if you take it in the round, the fact that the process is still ongoing, the fact that we're still talking is progress. But unfortunately, against that, uh, the reality of physics is not our friend here. The, the, the objectives that we have to achieve are unyielding and they're uninterested in our politics and our sci- and, and, and our processes. So we have, if you like, two strains. We, we have this continuing COP process on the one hand, and, and as I say, there is no alternative to it. I have to stress that. We can't just say, well, that doesn't work. Let's try something else. This is all we have. Uh, but as against that, uh, the, fact, the fact remains that we're so far from where we need to be, uh, that for me to be saying, yeah, I'm really pleased with the outcome uh, would be, I think it'd be, it would be dishonest. Okay. Uh, Kirsty Gogan, welcome to the stand, Kirsty. Um, there is no alternative and we're a long way from where we need to be. Tell me how you feel this two weeks uh, contributed or indeed detracted from the objective, which is making the world safe and particularly making the most vulnerable in the world in given geographically or financially safe from the ravages that we've seen of climate change. Yeah, thanks. And I, uh, thanks, Eamon. Um, um, I agree really with John. I mean, I, I would put it like the cop is half full um, rather than half empty um, because there was progress made um, and you know, that counts for something. 1.5 is still on the table. However unbelievable, you know, it might seem that, um, you know, does it look like a world that's about to cut its emissions in half in nine years from now? Not really. Um, if, and that's what would be necessary if we were to achieve 1.5 degrees. Um, we'd have to see the US, Europe and Australia phasing out coal use completely within five years, um, if we're going to achieve that 1.5 degrees target. So, you know, there's, there's a sort of, you know, a heavy dose of realism that's needed here in amongst the sort of efforts. China and India have particular um, allegiance, if you like, to coal. Uh, and we are told, it is reported, that in the last hour of the negotiations, they combined to deliver a, set, a heavy blow to the idea of phasing out coal. And the phrase that was used was 
that instead of phasing out, they would phase down. How significant was that intervention at the end, Kirsty? Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're seeing a lot of media sort of blaming India, particularly for that change in the language, phase down instead of phasing out. But it's really important to see the whole context here because, you know, actually, as as John was saying, you know, the, the, the climate emissions are cumulative in the atmosphere and the countries that have contributed the most to the emissions that we see in the atmosphere today are indeed the wealthy countries that have built their wealth and prosperity largely yes. on the use of fossil fuels and particularly coal, including the UK and the United States and others. And so there is really an argument that started to come through in this COP, which I think is really powerful, um, which is actually you know putting climate justice at the heart of all of our strategies and really recognizing you know where the where the responsibility lies, and then acting accordingly. And you know China and India are you know very large countries that are still really quite early in their development and their industrialization. Yes. Um, and you know in in the sort of in, in absolute terms have contributed a much much smaller yes. quantity to causing this issue in the first place. So there's an argument for those countries, you know, US, Europe, Australia, to phase down their coal much, much more rapidly and allow continue to allow um, developing countries in Asia and Africa, in, in China and India to continue to develop because ultimately, um, you know, a lack of access to electricity is, is not only... Um, you know, a, a severe impact on, on health and well-being and quality of life and safety and security and so on. But it also really increases the exposure of climate risk. So, you know, th these developing countries must grow their economies and increase their prosperity in order to insulate themselves, in order to create resilience against climate risk. And those impacts are here already. Yes, John, I mean, that idea of climate justice uh, that the uh, developed world uh, has had the benefits uh, of polluting the world. Um, and it's a bit rich, if you like, to expect China and India um, and Brazil, I, I imagine, uh, to now, if you like, decelerate at the same rate that we need to. Yeah, I think that's that is entirely the case, as Kirsty has outlined. Uh, I think what we also need to consider, though, is that if we don't have a schedule for everybody um, getting getting off fossil fuels in the relatively near future, even allowing for climate justice, and I completely agree, the West has to jump first and it has to jump furthest. But yes. The, the climate transition, which was originally flagged all the way back to Copenhagen in 2009, this was supposed to be the transfer of huge amounts of money from the global north to the global south to allow the global south to develop in a way that didn't, if you like, replicate the errors of our growth. In yes. other words, that to allow them to follow a low emissions trajectory to achieve that resilience that Kirsty described without actually putting more fuel on the fire. Because there is no resilience as long as we continue to ratchet up fossil fuel emissions. And the atmosphere, frankly, doesn't care from where those emissions originally emanate. Yes. And the atmosphere also doesn't care whether the emissions in China are ultimately being, in fact, uh, are for the production of products that end up in, in Ireland or in America. So the global atmosphere requires us to think and act 
globally. And I think that is really important to say, but climate justice demands that those who have already exhausted, if you like, their share of the of the shared global pie of carbon, if I can put it that way, they must act first and soonest, allowing other countries to 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 follow that pathway. But the pathway that we've seen now is a pathway that that follows either renewables or other forms of zero carbon energy. We cannot and this is, I think, one of the really worrying things, if you like, from from uh, Glasgow, is say in the case of India, they're pitching out to 2070. Now, um, there's various people have done different calculations on this, uh, but I don't think it's it's feasible that say China and India will continue uh, a largely coal powered uh, development process over the next three decades without us tripping through many of these uh, hard hard lines in terms of, of, of climate danger. So 1.5, 2 degrees. And we know, for example, Eamon, that if you take all the NDCs, all the nationally determined contributions that arose from Glasgow and they were improved at Glasgow, right? Yes. It took us down from a pre-Glasgow of about 2.7 to a post-Glasgow of about 2.4. There was some initial uh, enthusiasm that we that we were actually at 1.8, but these were reassessed. They're at about 2.4, but it is very important to to point out that that requires that every country who signs up to this fully implements every commitment that they take. And if I look at Ireland, for example, I can say for sure that we will fall short of the commitments that we have undertaken. And we're a wealthy first world country. Now, if I was India, if I was Indonesia, if I was uh, China, and I were looking at countries like Ireland already welshing on our commitments, I'd be saying to my population, who have to deal with much more fundamental issues, Eamon, than we do, they've got to deal with access to clean water, with yes, access course, to electricity. Yes. So the kind of first world problems that we encounter uh, relative to the existential struggle for survival, that, that is the case for so many people in the world, I absolutely understand their fury when they look at the hypocrisy of wealthy Western countries that say, we, we will... We would like to continue being wealthy uh, and into the future. Would you mind staying being poor? Uh, Kirsty, I saw your hand raised there. Um, did you, I, I'm sure you wanted to come in. I, I would like to ask you, um, can we see the potential for scientific response as we've seen with COVID and the willingness of governments to invest? I mean, and nuclear is your uh, particular area um, of interest, and indeed you've been involved for a long time, and it does seem to me that nuclear is an answer, is the answer, a huge answer to the production of energy uh, and clean energy at that. Yeah, thanks. I'll, yeah, I'll, get, I'll, re- I'll fold in the thing I wanted to say into responding to that because, you know, we responded with a very, like, a very impressive, unprecedented, really, global response from the scientific community to COVID. And that's because we recognized and acted like it was an emergency, Yes, which it was. We, we're calling the climate emergency an emergency and we're not acting like it's an emergency. Now, if we started acting like it, then I think we could probably muster a response that you know is appropriate to the scale and urgency of the challenge that we face. And the thing that I wanted to add on to, you know, John was inspiring me to sort of remember some of the voices that we heard at COP um, from the Global South in particular, who are now exposed already to very severe climate impacts and who yes. also need to grow their economies you know, people from the Maldives, from South Africa, from Kenya. These are almost like voices from the future um, who are already feeling like far more exposed 
to climate impacts than we are in in Europe and in the United States, for example. And we should take heed of those voices. And the interesting thing about it is firstly, the sort of the urgency that they feel to having a meaningful response um, and combined with the need to grow their economies, to increase their access to energy, increase their access to clean energy in order to increase their resilience to these risks. But also um, the, the, the sort of much broader range of technologies and options and solutions that they're open to. In, in South Africa, even in the Maldives, they announced that they would be very interested in nuclear energy um, as a way of, of meeting their own energy needs, as a way of um, producing clean synthetic fuels that could be used in aviation that will enable them to sustain the, the tourism economy that depends on long-haul flights, for example, as a yes. way of creating more energy security. And we saw a slew of announcements coming from the United States um, uh, pumping millions and millions of dollars into investment in in enabling nuclear energy, small modular reactors, hydrogen produced fuels using nuclear energy um, in places like Romania and Ukraine and Poland, places that are, you know, not only have large, you know, complicated transitions away from coal um, and nuclear energy is one of the only ways in which we, you know, we can transition economies away from coal as, as we've seen um uh, in Germany, for example, where they have been unable to transition away from coal, um, having now tried to, they can't phase out coal and nuclear at the same time, but also to build energy security in those countries that are, you know, really dependent on Russian gas, for example. So there's a sort of geopolitical yes. dimension here, as well as obviously supporting decarbonization and, and clean energy growth in their countries. So I think, I think, Eamon, we, we saw an unprecedented representation for nuclear energy at this COP and a much broader openness, not only for um, repowering coal and producing fuels and enabling the transitions and the energy growth that's needed, but also nuclear technologies for, for other applications, including water and land um, uh, diagnostics and, and other sort of, you know, carbon-based um, diagnostics for which nuclear technologies are absolutely vital. We actually wouldn't know that climate change is caused by humans without isotopes that were produced by the IAEA that are then used by the World Meteorological Organization. So it's, yes. it's, it's, it, it was very interesting to see that as the emergence, the sense of emergency, the sense of urgency increases, we're starting to move away from, you know, the kind of fr frankly a little indulgent technology preferences towards an openness. Yes, yeah, so John Gibbons, nuclear is a very emotive thing in Ireland. We tried to build a nuclear facility here back in the 1970s and it was murder. Uh, and interestingly, despite the praise and respect internationally for Angela Merkel, uh, she decided that Germany would dispense with nuclear. Um, and that's rather surprising because it does seem, if France is a very good example uh, of a country where nuclear energy uh, is just accepted. Uh, where are you on that as some a long-term environmentalist? Yeah, I've always taken a pragmatic view, Eamon, on this. Uh, you know, we, we have obviously massive uh, global energy demand. And in some parts of the world, we're probably using too much energy, let's be honest about it, and we need to power down. In other parts of the world, uh, basic human needs have not yet been met, so they need to power up. 
So one yes. of the issues that has happened so far, and I'm just for a second, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, park nuclear and I will come back to it. One of the issues that we've seen with the rapid and dramatic increase in the deployment of, of renewable energy, which, by the way, has been a great success, say, particularly in the last decade, as costs have fallen, say, with solar and with wind and offshore and so on. What we've seen is that the, the total share of fossil fuels of the global energy pie has remained around about the same. What's happened is the pie has gotten bigger, right? Yes. We have set no limits on global energy consumption. And all we're doing is we're right. throwing in some more renewables. So renewables help to make energy cheaper. So great, let's use more and more and more. Yes. What will we use it for? For transport, for, for you know, uh, aviation, for whatever. So let's make energy cheaper. Now, the problem here is there are some biophysical issues that we probably haven't talked about. When people talk about climate change, we tend to focus on the human impacts, which are very important. We also have a biosphere that's been torn down, been destroyed and undermined, obviously, by our emissions, but also being torn down by, by being con converting raw materials into stuff and then transporting that stuff, consuming that stuff and dumping the byproducts of it. Now, all of that, Eamon, is facilitated by access to huge gallops of energy. Yes. So at some point, we have to have a serious discussion about a concept called global power down, where we accept energy budgets, and then we move quickly to phase out fossil fuels and replace them with low and zero energy technologies. That means lots of renewables, lots of wind, lots of solar, and in my book, lots of nuclear, right? So, yeah. John, has any, have you done, can I just, I'm really curious because we, we've done a bit of the maths on this. So let's say that we were to enable the whole world to achieve the global median energy use, which is about 4,000 um, kilowatt hours per person per year. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that, you know, the US uses about 16 right now, you know, and, and you know, some, uh, some like in sub-Saharan Africa have like, you know, maybe 40. So this, so the the four thousand is about uh, the kind of level of energy use in in say the Czech Republic, which I think you know I don't know if you've been to the Czech Republic, but it's really perfectly nice quality of life that people enjoy there. But it's not, you know, as sort of uh, you know, it's not as uh, as full as like Australia and the United States, for example. And it's know, not as wasteful, basically, right, Kirsty, as yeah. indeed, yeah. yeah. So it's it's a perfectly good quality of life and the whole if the whole world were to achieve that level we would need to probably quadruple the global energy infrastructure right now because four billion people lack access to enough electricity and almost a billion people lack access to any electricity right now so the the disparity right now is so large and it is it even if we were to achieve that median level you're talking about you know tripling or quadrupling the global energy infrastructure and there's real real questions about where that energy will come from, what are the land use requirements associated with that, what are the raw materials, the supply chain implications of that, especially if we were to try to do it with the majority of renewable energy. So we do really, I agree with you, we have to work within the constraints, but at the same time, any attempt to, to power down or decarbonize the global economy without having climate justice at its heart, which includes massively increasing access to energy um, is, is is frankly it's just it's going to fail and I'll give you an ex one more example which is this 2.4 degree trajectory that you know we we now think we may be on if all of the commitments that were made which is a huge caveat <laughs> mm -hmm. if all of the commitments 
that were made at COP26 are met, which is, as you say, you know, you, you know, highly unlikely, even then that, that those that trajectory takes into account no growth in energy access. So I, I really think we have to go into this with our eyes open. Otherwise, we're really at a very serious risk of failing and it's too, too big a risk. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let me ask you both, um, John, starting with you, all of this is really political. And uh, Donald Trump, when he became president of the United States in 2016, he repudiated the commitments that Obama had made in 2015 in Paris he withdrew from the um, Paris Accords, and he's highly likely to be the president of the United States in 2024. If you were having a bet now, he's the favorite with the bookies. Um, so the United States and China are the two biggest emitters. If Trump comes in and repudiates the whole idea of climate change, the very notion of it, because he doesn't believe in it, how devastating for the world will that be 
I'd like you to answer first, John, and then you, Kirsty. Sure, Eamon. I, I, I don't share your nightmare. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I choose not to share your nightmare. Give me, give me a couple of years, uh, Trump-free, just even in my head, uh, okay. to, to, to wash him out. But, but okay, let's, let's allow that situation to unfold. Okay, clearly that would mean, the, again, the, the loss and the collapse of multilateralism. Because yes. obviously, you know, a, a, a shared threat like this requires a multilateral response yes. on, on a scale that we really haven't seen since maybe the, the reconstruction in Europe after the Second World War, uh, where, where yes. you know, you put aside your, your, your difference for a while to focus on, on a large project. Now, that type of, of multilateralism, multilateralism, we haven't seen much of it recently. In fact, with, with the rise of, of authoritarianism and so on, we're seeing less and less. So to take your scenario, Eamon, uh, in that case, that would mean America, again, following a, uh, an isolationist pathway yes. and basically saying stuff the world and so on. And that will in, in turn uh, trigger the likes of Russia and China to disengage. We saw that with China. Uh, they, they kind of, after Trump was elected, they began to disengage from from from. Yes, from and it, it's, a, it's a growing trend in America that uh, hardly anybody denies. America is moving rapidly towards isolationism. There's no question about that. Yeah, that, that is the case. And the problem is... Uh, we either, you know, when, when addressing a shared threat like this, we are, you know, the old saying, we either hang together or we hang separately. separately. Yeah. So if, for example, uh, the U.S. decides to withdraw from climate diplomacy for another four or six years, that's our window for action closed on our fingers. OK, right. so so to take, you know, I, and I know where this question is leading us. Uh, basically, yeah, if that happens uh, and assume it plays out the way you'd expect it to play out, well, then that's game, set and match. Okay, Kirsty Gogan, you are in and out of Downing Street. You're at the, the center of power and close to the big decision makers. There's a, a sense in which Britain is a big player here, but there's no doubt that the United States is a massive player. Uh, in the event of a rogue or delinquent administration in the United States, how severe a blow would that be? to your hopes and John's hopes and indeed all our hopes for a cleaner uh, and more livable world. Yeah, I mean, it, I have to say it was really nice that America was back at COP26. Yes. Um, you know, really back with a vengeance, actually, and with incredible leadership. And there's no doubt that they had, you know, they had a major presence and that their presence was welcomed as a real engine for change, um, yes, and you know the and they committed a lot of money, didn't they? Yeah, they're they're committing a lot of money into innovation resources, and then they're bringing the sort of leadership that's really needed. Um, and you know, then they brokered the deal with China, you know, which was you know a great source of of optimism. So you know, we're we're stronger with them, no doubt. However, you know, what's really interesting when you look back at you know the Trump era, there was still huge progress made in the United States at the state level. You know, the federal yes. level is important on the international stage. It's important for support, for providing that global leadership. And the isolationism is the opposite of what we need right now. As, as John said, I was yes. really sort of inspired by this kind of species-wide response that's needed. Um, not a nationalist response, but a global international response. 
And we would we would lack that. We would miss that as we did during the Trump administration if we were to go back to that again. But at the same time, the momentum now that's built within the investment community, within the entrepreneurial um, business communities, um, it's all pointing in one direction. The global momentum that we have, um, and you know that will continue in the United States. There was, in terms of the climate leadership around nuclear energy, actually, we've seen a very kind of consistent approach through, from Obama to Trump and now to the Biden administration. There's been continued investment in innovation there. And um, actually, when you look back at, you know, the um, Obama administration and you found how hampered he was, yes, um, it was really difficult actually for him to get as much done as he really wanted to get done. He was really hampered. And so, you know, I, what I'm seeing now in the climate um, discourse in the United States, and I met with members of Congress from Republican members of Congress and Democrat members of, of Congress when I was at COP. And what I'm seeing is bipartisan leadership. And I suspect that even under, you know, let's hope that doesn't happen in another Trump administration, that we would continue to see bipartisan leadership on on these issues. Okay, just a final question, John. Uh, and it addresses our own behavior in this country uh, we live in. Um, we need to do our stuff and there needs to be punishment if we don't. Does there not? Well, I think so, Eamon. We've set, you know, in line with EU, our, our 2030 commitment is to a 51% uh, emissions cut across the board. Um, we've all got to get on board with that. Um, that requires changing everything about how we live. And, and that penny hasn't dropped I, I still see media commentators. I still see people living in, in a fantasy land that we yes. can basically have a slightly greener version of absolutely everything the way yes. it is now. You know, we'll have an electric car instead of a regular car. We'll have a heat pump instead of a, a boiler. Now, these are all good things, but we're facing into a period, whether we like it or not, of either planned austerity or... Yes circumstances will impose austerity on us. I personally rather, I would rather a planned austerity because that way you you, you tend to get, you, you have a, a pathway and you can also maintain equity and so on. If austerity is imposed on a country, by which, by the way, I mean austerity being imposed by, by collapse and by a system yes. failure. That, in other words, the type of austerity that none of us want to, want to be to contemplate, but we have to. So we have to think, from from our point of view of playing our fair share in equity, how do we power this country down? And and you know, you know, people already saying, you know, well, why should we bother? Ireland is only small, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In emissions terms, we punch way above our weight on the international stage. And in per capita terms, I think we're the second or the third highest per capita polluters in Europe, which is yes. a very high sense or a very high center of international pollution. So. We have a huge obligation to act here. There is no moral basis left for Ireland to continue to Welsh on our commitments, uh, which we've done, by the way, I mean, for the last 10 years. In fact, in certain sectors, uh, we've done the opposite. We've been incredibly poor on transport and even worse on agriculture. We cannot make our targets for 2030 by continuing to write free passes for special interest lobby groups. And this is something that our politicians are going to have to, 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 to man up and, and face right. down these lobbyists. Kirsty, um, I'll leave the last word with you in terms of the UK. 
in terms of the UK being um, well, we are a, a self-confessed laggard <laughs> in terms <laughs> of climate change. Uh, the UK, um, I'm, I have the impression that it's one of uh, a virtuous, a more virtuous position than ours. Is that right? Uh, the uh, the UK has performed really well in terms of its um, progress on decarbonizing its electricity grid. Over the past five years, I think it's made the largest overall reduction in its emissions from electricity, largely by um, switching coal from coal to gas, building a lot of renewables and maintaining its nuclear fleet. So that's that's pretty good progress. But that's about 20% of our energy consumption. And the other 80%, you know, we still have really a lot of progress to make. Um, we're going to need to quadruple our electricity grid. And um uh, to in order to to support the decarbonization of industry and transport and heat really really challenging and one of the one of the big gaps that i see in all of our countries you know net zero targets is the gap between aspiration and reality and yes. you know a real there's a real need now for us to move from a sort of advocacy based sort of target setting mindset much more into a kind of planning and implementation where are we going to build this technology, all of this um, new energy generation infrastructure? Where's it going to go? How much is it going to cost? How much do we have to build? You know. A final brief question to both of you. Would it be better if after each COP, uh, 12 months later, the countries were called back and made to account for what they had done tw in the past 12 months rather than five or six years? I, I'm happy to start with that one, Eamon. That yeah. is, in fact, the plan arising from COP26 is that COP27 is in Egypt. And the plan is to bring the countries back to say, right, have you updated your NDCs? The countries that right. haven't, have you increased ambition? Because the five and in this case, six year break, say, between Paris and um and Glasgow, it's too long because the review periods are too long. You could have a whole government shift, very likely yep. uh, rotating governments. The next government comes in and says, well, I didn't sign up for that. And the nonsense goes on. So I think 12 month rolling reviews are your only man, because that way we can help to keep the, the political processes feet to the fire and keep them focused, irrespective of which particular politician is in power. Right. Kirsty? Yeah, accountability starts now starts here so the countdown to cop 27 starts here and and you know every day every day counts so well we've got 28 day 28 years to get to zero by 2050 globally um and you know it's really really important step actually to having to to reduce that accountability period so okay uh, i'm very grateful to both of you kirsty gogan is a founder and managing partner of terra praxis her company um, John Gibbons is a climate activist of long standing um, and a journalist who is a contributor to the Irish Times and the Sunday Business Post. Both um, know what they're talking about and uh, have made things a little bit clearer for this particular polluter. Thank you both very much. Uh, that's all we have time for. We're grateful to Kirsty and to John uh, and to all of you for listening. And that's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.